2012. Do you want to pray more? And would you like to pray and look at this year as a year that you said, I prayed a lot in 2012. There was perhaps a correction from years that have gone by where you've been more prayerless than this year. And this year was marked by praying to the Lord. And when I say praying, I don't mean just the discipline of prayer, getting after it and marking it down in your journal or on your calendar, but praying where you've communed with the living God in a fresh way this year, where this year is marked by an increase in your relationship to the Lord. Or perhaps even in this way, you prayed specifically for things and you were able to see specific answers to those prayers. You know, God has sort of three responses to us when we pray. He answers yes, he answers no, or wait a while. And so perhaps this year would be a year where you say, you know, Lord, you answered this way and that way. I prayed for this, but your, your plan unfolded this way and I was able to see how your hand was at work perfectly. But my prayers were part of that observation. Do you want that kind of year? Do you want to pray more? I was thinking, how can I give a message this year that would connect with the start of a new year, start of 2012, and I thought, you know, I want us to think about our prayer lives. A lot of times, I think, we sort of let ourselves out of praying. It's easy to stop, isn't it? It's easy to make excuses for why we shouldn't pray. For some of us, we tip the scales this way. We say, you know, God is in control of everything. He knows the beginning and the end. He, he's involved in his plan, and it's going to work out just the way that he carves it out to work out. And so I'm going to just let myself off the hook and not really pray at all. God is so big that he doesn't need my prayers, right? Do you ever think that way and have that line of excuse for not praying? Some of us do. I perhaps would tend to, to be in that camp. Then there's the other camp where you have prayed and prayed and prayed and you're exerting effort to see things happen and you pray and you write things down in your journal and you don't ever see any answers or you don't think you see answers and so you throw your hands up and say, well, why pray? Because it never really does any good anyway. Did you ever fall into that camp? I think I've fallen into both camps, Right? Well, let me just try to open up why pray from Acts chapter 12. You know, this chapter talks about how God is in complete control and we as Christians are completely weak and not in control. And those two principles need to be clear in our minds as to why we pray. God, you are in control. And God's sovereign control isn't an excuse not to pray. It's the total reason to pray because God is working everything out according to his plan and we want to join in. But we don't join in with our own efforts like we're pulling ourselves up with our, by our own bootstraps and our own strength. We fall upon the mercy of God and say, I am completely weak, helpless, and powerless to do anything. And so, God, your strength and my weakness is the reason that I'm going to pray. And those two principles are embedded in this story. Let me share one story before we get to the Bible story. I, I was a couple years ago in an airport and was talking on my cell phone. And if you've ever been around me, I talk louder than I'm supposed to. My volume control, my filter on volume really doesn't work very well. If I'm ever leading a Bible study in a coffee shop, the coffee shop is part of the Bible study, whether they want to be or not. I'm just too loud. I don't know. My wife's working with me on that. But anyway, I, I'm just talking away and I'm in an airport terminal. I'm talking to a pastor friend of mine about a pastoral issue. And a guy is eavesdropping on my conversation, whether he wanted to or not, but he was. And I was getting ready to board on, uh, I believe it was Southwest Air, and it was uh, sort of that cattle train where you, you find your seat when you get on the plane, right? And so you sort of line up for that. Well, this guy had, was eavesdropping on my conversation, and he began to pray in his heart that I would sit next to him on the plane. And the reason he was saying that prayer to God is because he was hurting deeply inside because he was a first-time dad, and a newlywed, 
And he later told me that his wife was going in to see the doctor just at that moment because he thought that, and she thought that she was miscarrying their first baby. And so that diagnosis was being um, surmised in that moment. So this guy began to pray because he realized I was a pastor and he wanted to share that with me. So he was praying that I would sit next to him. And guess what? The Lord worked it out in his divine purpose and plan that I just walked down the aisle and sat next to him. And not too long in the plane flight, he began to open his heart to me because he wanted me to pray with him and help him through that trial. The end of the story is by the time we landed the plane, he told me, because he got on the phone with his wife, that everything was okay and his baby was going to be fine. Now, I couldn't have orchestrated that kind of connectivity, that kind of gelling with God's sovereign plan and his weakness where he was helpless to solve his problems. He was helpless to, to try to coordinate a pastor to sit next to him to help him through that or a Christian brother or sister. He, I couldn't have coordinated that and he couldn't have coordinated that, but the Lord gelled those two things together. God's sovereign plan and human weakness coming together. That's what prayer is. That's why we pray. We pray because we can't help ourselves. We can't do anything to help ourselves. We need to communicate to God that he is in control and we need his help all at the same time. And somehow in the mystery of God, he gels God's control, his control, and our weakness and answers prayer. Do you want to be part of that in 2012? I do. I do. I want to recommit this morning for us to be a church that prays, for me to be a pastor who prays earnestly and fervently for God's will to be done. Well, Acts chapter 12. Let me begin the story reading verses 1 through 4. About the time Herod the king, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. This morning, we're going to look at Peter's miracle rescue. He's going to be rescued from prison. I'm giving the end of the story right away. But it illustrates these two motivations to pray. God's sovereignty, that's the first motivation. God's sovereignty. And then our human weakness. Now, just to give you a little background to this story, the author is the Apostle Luke. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote Luke, that Gospel, and the book of Acts to his friend, his good buddy, Theophilus. Theophilus, that name means lover of God. This is a Roman official that's a friend of the Gentile writer Luke, who was also a doctor, Luke the physician. He wrote his Gentile friend or Roman friend, Theophilus, And if you were to look at Luke 1, verse 4, as we did last week, he's writing to Theophilus so that Theophilus, as either a new Christian brother or as a person that Luke is trying to evangelize, he's trying to concrete in Theophilus' mind the gospel and the truthfulness of the gospel. So both Luke and Acts are really long evangelistic memoirs or, or tracts or they're, they're gospel narratives to concrete in Theophilus' mind with certainty that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why, that's why Luke wrote these large books of the Bible. And perhaps Theophilus even um, comped these, uh, these narratives. In other words, uh, Theophilus may be uh, facilitated with money Uh, Luke's writing and freeing him up to go travel around and recount all of the the ministry of Christ and all of the ministry of the early church so that he could put these things together. These are amazing narratives and amazing stories. The, The book of Acts is the story of the church in the Bible. We would have little to no data about the early church if we did not have this precious book of the Bible, the book of Acts. 
It makes sense of how all of the, the Pauline letters fit together because Paul on his missionary journeys wrote these churches back. And the book of Acts gives us a background as to what Paul was doing on his missionary journey. But, but this is at this point in Acts 12 talking about Peter, that great leader in the early church. And Luke is writing about him. And the church was falling on really, really hard times at this point. Very, very difficult times. Look at verse 1. You have Herod. This is Herod Agrippa, the king, and he laid violent hands on some. In other words, the church was being terrorized by this King Herod Agrippa, this Roman leader who had been put in power over the Jews during this time. And this Roman leader was trying to stay in good favor with Rome by beating up the church. And he was also trying to stay in good favor with the Jews by beating up the church because the church was a rival to the Jews during this time. The church was growing exponentially, by the way. Even though there were hard times and there were martyrs and God was protecting some and then letting some die for the faith, during these hard times, the church was growing. And you know, the church advanced from 12 people to 120 people to 3,000 people being saved at Pentecost. And then another revival moment in Acts chapter 4 where 5,000 people were saved. And then you have whole Gentile regions that were being saved like Samaria where, where Jew and Gentile were coming together and there was incredible racial reconciliation, which just doesn't happen, but it was happening. All of the, the racism was falling down and this one people of God was banding together by the thousands. I mean, if you think of Samaria, 20,000 and then more and then more exponential growth was happening. And so this man, Herod Agrippa, was looking at that And this man, just by the way, incidentally, he had been put in prison in Rome a few years before by Emperor Tiberius because he was bad-mouthing Tiberius. Not sure what that was about. But then when Tiberius died, King Agrippa was stationed over these Jews and... He was trying to make his mark by stamping out the church, getting in good favor with the Jewish people and then also in good favor with Rome. He was a tool, he was really a tool of Satan to try to stamp out the early church. And this guy was a bad guy. He had killed his son, let me see his name, Aristobulus. He had killed him because he thought his son was going to try to overthrow him in power. He was schoolmates with Emperor Claudius. And he had been schooled under Emperor Caligula. And you historians or you history buffs know that that's some bad company. And this was a very angry, mean leader. What did he do? Look at verse 1. He laid violent hands on some. Who did he lay violent hands on? Verse 2. He killed James. He killed James, one of the sons of thunder. This is one of the quarterbacks of the early church. This is a strong upfront leader. And Agabus said, I'm going to take him out. I'm going to take a leader out. Now, Jesus actually predicted this death in Mark chapter 10 when James and John, remember, they used their mother to say, um, you know, which one of my sons can sit at your right hand? And Jesus said, listen, you're going to drink the same cup that I drink and you're going to die. And that's, in fact, exactly what happened to this James. This is not James, the author of the book of James. This is one of the sons of thunder who was killed. Now, as the story opens up, what you have here is you have Agabus, and he's trying to, to make his political moves in the right way where the Jews won't get mad at him. Because remember, James and Peter are of Jewish descent. They're by, by ethnicity, they're Jews. And so even though they're part of the church, he's still killing Jews. And so he's trying to be careful, and he's also trying to, in a, a fake way... Or sort of a, a false, superficial way. He's trying to honor the Jewish calendar. And so he, he kills James and then incarcerates Peter. Now Peter is even more popular than James, perhaps, as he had been given the keys of the kingdom. Remember that? So he's the main preacher guy in the early church. And so he, he doesn't kill Peter right away. He incarcerates him. 
to, to quote-unquote honor the, the unleavened bread ceremony in verse 3 and also honoring Passover, as you'll see in verse 4, right? He's honoring, not really honoring, but he's trying to, he's trying to make good political moves so the Jews won't overwhelm him. And so verse 4 says, And when he seized him, he seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Why four squads? Peter's a very popular man. Peter is the leader. I mean, if you have James and John as quarterbacks, this is kind of the coach of the church. This is the lead pastor of the church, and we're putting him in prison. So we're going to put what's called a quadrennial or four groups of soldiers around Peter in prison. You actually have a scene where two soldiers are, are chained to Peter's wrists, and then you've got two soldiers, one that's at one, one gate and then one that's at another gate, and then these soldiers all rotate in shifts every three hours to make sure Peter is completely in solitary confinement, right? Completely locked down, very much like was done when Jesus died and was put in the tomb. The guards were beefed up because we can't have this leader escape our leadership. Why? Because this was a huge political moment for Herod Agrippa. He does not want Peter to escape whatsoever. And he wants to stage a mock trial. Now, let me just remind us now, this sermon is about God's control and man's weakness. Though Herod seems like he's large and in charge, doing his worst to the church, guess what? God is completely in control. Where man is at his weakest point, chained to guards, God is in complete control of where Peter is. And so you have God was growing his church exponentially, and then God is ruling his church perfectly. He's ruling his church perfectly when God's church looks as if it is completely helpless to do nothing. God's church was completely helpless. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter was kept in prison. In other words, the popularity of Peter was not going to spring Peter. He was not going to come out on bail. There was not going to be sort of a a church uprise where um, they're going to be able to talk Peter out of prison. He's going to be in prison. And from a human standpoint or human perspective, Peter's death is certain. He's on death row. It's going to happen. There's going to be a mock trial and he is going down. So the church decides to do something. They gather together and they do, watch this, the only thing they could do, and they did the best thing that they could do. Do you see that? They did the best thing that they could do. From a human standpoint, you go, you know, look, couldn't you pull some strings? Couldn't you hire an attorney? Couldn't you raise up an army? You could throw some money at this. You could strategize in this way or that way. All of those efforts are powerless efforts at this moment. They're not going to bring any good yield. And they did the only thing they could do. And they did the best thing that they could do. They called a prayer vigil. They went to Mary's house, which this is the mother of John Mark, her house. And they gathered together, probably a large house, with a lot of people in that area as the church. And they gathered and they prayed. Look at this, earnest praying. It was earnest Prayer for him was made. That word earnest is the same word used of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed and sweated great drops of blood. It was serious prayer time. It was concerted. It was focused. It was a strong effort of prayer for Peter, for his deliverance. Perhaps they were praying for what happened in Acts 5 where Peter, as part of an evangelistic team, had been delivered from prison by an angel. Maybe they were praying for that to happen again. Lord, we know you just did that, but Lord, we pray that you would do it once again. We love our shepherd. We want Peter to be delivered. And so we're praying for his 
deliverance. Now, I love the formula of prayer here. It's really sophisticated and complicated, right? Look at verse 5. They, they were praying earnestly for him was made to God by the church. You see that? How, how did they pray? Well, they prayed for Peter to God as a church. I think a lot of times we talk ourselves out of praying, right? We go, well, I'll get to prayer. I had scheduled it in my daytimer, so I missed it. So now I can't get to my formal, liturgical, serious prayer time. So I'm going to not pray. I, I can't get alone with God. And so now I'm not going to pray, right? I, we could pray in our hearts, but, you know, that's not as good as alone time with God prayer. So I'm not going to pray. Wait, I don't, you know, I've been sort of messing up in, in my thinking lately or my attitude. And I've been sinning. And so I'm not going to pray. I'm not worthy enough to pray. So I'm going to let myself out of prayer. Wait, I don't believe God answers those kinds of prayer requests really. He's not that supernatural. So I'm not going to pray. There's all kinds of reasons that we can tell ourselves where we are talking ourselves out of doing the best thing, and that is to pray. And that's exactly what the church did. They prayed, as a church, earnestly, they prayed for Peter to God. You see that? It's just simple. Prayer is simple. And I think when we make prayer complicated, when we make it where we have to pray in a different tone of voice, you know, we have to say, Our Father. Lord, you are great and mighty, and now I'm going to use my best radio voice to summons your presence now for you to affect change. And if I were to talk conversationally, that would be irreverent. No, we, we can't do that. we got to be ourselves as believers and pray. And pray to our Heavenly Father, who loves us intimately, who made our voice sound the way that it sounds, right? Deep or tenor, right? Whatever. We, we need to pray at all times, sometimes on our knees, sometimes standing, sometimes walking. We need to pray in our houses. We need to pray in our cars. We need to pray with brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to do it all the time. But not excusing ourselves for whatever reason not to do it. We don't need to let ourselves out of it. We need to recognize, God, you are strong. You're in control. You do affect change and you do use our prayers especially when we recognize that we are totally weak and totally helpless to do anything but pray. John Stott, have you heard of him as a famous pastor and preacher in the UK? He said, the only power the powerless possess is prayer. That's where we have to begin. Well, look at verse 6. Peter is completely helpless. How helpless is Peter? Luke wants to make this explicitly clear in detail. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. This is complete and total lockdown. And I already described how typically, well, Peter was chained to two guards. Typically, a prisoner would only be chained to one guard by the left hand so that the guard would have his right hand ready and free with a sword to uh, ward off enemies or do whatever with his sword he would need to do in that moment. We have two guards chained to Peter at this point. And you've got sort of a, a shift of guards that will, will change their different post, being chained to Peter for three hours and then guarding the door and then guarding the front gate door. And that shift was happening continuously to ensure that Peter in no way could escape whatsoever. In the midst of this drama, you find Peter doing something that is very unique and unusual. If I was chained down where the next day I was going to be killed, I'm not sure that, that the writing of Scripture would record me as doing what Peter was doing. Look at verse 6. What was he doing? He was snoozing. He probably slept better that night than I did last night, right? I mean, he, he was sleeping. Why is he sleeping? Well, the Bible doesn't say exactly. Uh, Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers and preachers in the first century, says that he was sleeping because he was resting in the sovereignty of God. He was resting in God's plan. We're not sure of that. Perhaps Peter was exhausted. Perhaps he was, had been being tortured and he was sort of just knocked out from, from being tortured. Perhaps he had given up. We don't know his spiritual condition at this point. He knew that Jesus had predicted in John chapter 21 that Peter was going to be a martyr, that he was going to die. And indeed, Peter was a martyr. 
church history says that he was crucified upside down. So maybe Peter thought, well, this is that time and I'm going to sleep. I'm discouraged. We don't know if he was resting spiritually in God and sleeping or he was massively discouraged and just gave up and sleeping. But guess what? He was sleeping. He was just knocked out, making good use of his time. Who knows? But he was sleeping. But then something happened. And by the way, him sleeping, that's a picture of man's weakness, right? The two points embedded in this text. He's completely helpless to help himself. He knows he can't get out of this in his own strength. He's helpless, completely helpless, and perhaps even hopeless. Now, remember, Peter had just been delivered. Acts chapter 5, he had been delivered from this situation before by the angel of the Lord. And yet in this situation... He's saying to himself, I'm not going to be delivered. I've got no expectation to get out of this. He's no Harry Houdini who's going to somehow get out of this situation. He is given over to it and asleep. He's completely weak. And now verses 7 through 11 build the scene of Peter's rescue and deliverance. God delivers Peter mightily and powerfully. Look at verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what that what was being done by the angel was real. And thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So what happens here? You have a miraculous rescue from the Lord through an angel. Now, some people debate Whether or not this was an angel standing over Peter, I don't want to get into that. It's pretty obvious. The word angel is angelos or messenger. I believe that this is an appearance of an angel. There's an accompaniment of light here. Ninety times in the scripture when you have angels, they're surrounded in light. It seems to mesh with all of scripture. This is an angel of God standing over Peter. And the picture is one where you have Peter who's laying helplessly in chains. And and you have an angel standing over as a representative of God, representing God's strength and power in that moment to deliver someone who is helpless to deliver himself. That's the picture. Human weakness and God's strength manifested through an angel. Now, Peter is sleeping and he's sound asleep because an angel coming into the room in this kind of brilliance would typically wake somebody up, but he's sound asleep like a teenager on Saturday morning. And I say that because what does the angel have to do? He actually strikes him in the side. It says, he struck, verse 7, he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. I think he just knocked him in the ribs and said, Peter, wake up. Why does Peter need to wake up? You know why? He wants Peter not to save himself. He, Peter can't save himself. He wants Peter to catch on to the fact that he's being delivered. Isn't that a unique principle in prayer? A lot of times we'll pray and we'll say, Lord, we want you to do something. And this is specifically what we want you to do. And we don't know what God is ultimately going to do or what he's up to. But God wants us to become aware of what he's doing. We wanna, he wants us to see his will unfolding before our eyes in the way that he is doing it. He wants to deliver people in the way he wants to deliver people. And sometimes God plans for a James to die or a Stephen to die, right? And sometimes he delivers and rescues. He brings high and he brings low. He allows things to happen, both good and bad in the world, but he wants his church to catch on and be aware of what's going on so that God will get glory and the church will be encouraged. I'm stealing a little bit of my thunder, but that's the point of this text. He wants Peter to catch on, wake up. 
And you'll see, I, I think it's in verse 9, he, he, he thought he was seeing a vision. He, he wasn't really sure. Verse 9, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He, he wasn't fully engaged here. He's kind of lethargic. He's like, well, I'm chained and I'm kind of giving up. And the angel's going, hey, man, get with it. Get with it. This is your rescue moment. And I want you to catch on to this. Because there's a bigger purpose than Peter just being rescued here. So Peter needs to catch on to what's going on. What do you need to be catching on to in your life? What do you need to pay attention to that God's doing in your life right now? What do you need to be either praying about or as you're praying, acknowledging and catching on to? Because probably God is doing something in your life that's supernatural, that's bigger than even what you're praying for. And he wants you to catch on to see what's going on for a greater purpose, perhaps even in our local church or in your family or in your personal life. He wants you to wake up and catch on. There's a deliverance that's happening here. There's a, there's a realness. There's something real that's taking place that's concrete. And the angel and Peter in this scenario, they begin to sort of live out what would sort of be recorded in a great spy novel. They're working in concert together. There's supernatural things that are happening. And then Peter actually is catching on and doing some things to... to help himself out. He's dressing himself. He's wrapping himself in a cloak. Verse 8, he's following the angel. We don't know if the guards, as, as in verse 10, as they're passing by the guards, we don't know if the guards were sleeping or if they were just somehow diverted supernaturally, but they passed the first and the second guard and they came to the iron gate. Now, this iron gate would be a gate that one man would not be strong enough to move or to open up. This is kind of like a castle gate. And so it takes more than one husky man um, to, to move this gate. But miraculously, the door comes open. The iron gate leading into the city, it opened for them of its own accord. Luke is very specific here that this is a miracle opening. This is the open sesame, you know, moment. And it opens up and it's what the Lord did. And they went out, verse 10, and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. Why did the angel leave? Mission was over. Mission was over. This was not... This was a very supernatural event. We celebrate God in him delivering Peter in this moment. It was wonderful and beautiful and miraculous. But, but that's not the main point of what's going on here. God wants his church to be encouraged that their pastor has come back to them. That for this scenario, the, the answer to the prayer request is, yes, we're going to actually deliver your shepherd, Peter, back to you at this moment. And so the angel, he, he dumps Peter off on a side street, and he's gone. He's out of there. The angel isn't going to be part of the reconnection with the local church as it's meeting to pray. That's not the point of this. It's, Peter, my mission is over. I'm a messenger, and then I'm out of here. And, I, and Peter, incidentally, is dumped off on a side street. Why? Because he's a fugitive at this moment. He's not in a public arena. He's, he's over in the alley and he's going now to encourage the church. It says that he went along one, one street, verse 10, and immediately the angel left him. And then verse 11, look at this again. This is very key. When Peter came to himself, same language as the prodigal son when he was in the pig slop and he had rebelled against his father and spent all of his inheritance. His repentance moment was he came to himself and he went back home. Well, Peter, in a, a, a lesser way, is coming to himself. He's realizing what's going on. And he's realizing that now, you know what, God has delivered me and I've got a message to deliver to the church. I've got something burning in my heart that I've got to share with the church to encourage them because I've been delivered. It says, now I am sure, verse 11, that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. The whole city 
the whole area was expecting me to die. And I realize now, as the wind is connecting with my face and I'm, I'm waking up to what just happened to me, I'm realizing that, hey, God, you delivered me. And what everybody else expected didn't happen. And so I'm delivered. And I need to use this moment to give you glory and encourage the church. And that's exactly what he did. Now, again, we've looked at the first motivation, and that is that God is in complete control. And God overrides impossible circumstances, and he did in Peter's life. And that motivates us to pray because we realize that God is in control. But the second motivation sort of flips this on its head. And the second motivation is that we are completely weak and helpless to change things in and of ourselves. No matter how much we throw money at a problem, um, ingenuity at a problem, no matter how, how much we're grabbing a think tank to try to work something out, we recognize that we are completely weak and powerless, and God is the one who has to work things out. And that's the point that's made here in this third scene, verses 12 through 17. Look at what Peter did. He realized this, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name, whose other name was Mark, that's John Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Let's stop there. It's a humorous sort of story. You've got Rhoda, who's the servant girl, so she's a young gal. In this culture, perhaps females were not as respected as they should have been, but she's a servant girl, and she's a young gal, so people, the church isn't paying as much respect to her, but she's the one selected, the unlikely gal who's, who's selected in God's plan to hear her pastor's voice, her shepherd's voice, out in the street and runs out to greet him. Peter was banging on the door. Remember, he's a fugitive. He wants to be let in for safety. And a servant girl, Rhoda, or uh, perhaps transliterated now as Rose, Rhoda hears the voice and she is overwhelmed with joy. So you got sort of two doorways. You've got a gate entrance out here and then you've got the main doorway where everybody was praying. And she, she hears Peter's voice and she's overwhelmed and she knows immediately that that's Peter. Just like when you hear a voice on the radio that you like to hear as a preacher, you go, oh, yeah, I know that voice, and, and I'm used to being ministered to by that shepherd. That's what she was doing. She was overwhelmed with joy, though, because she loved Peter so much. And what she did instead of letting him in is ran back into the house to share that joy with everybody else. It's just there are some unique sort of embedded points here. I mean, think about this. The point of her joy isn't just... Um, you know, to, to go reunite with Peter. But the point of her joy was, and she's overwhelmed that God has delivered him and she wants to share that message with the church. She's overwhelmed. She wants to make that joy corporate. She doesn't just hold it to herself. This isn't a self-centered gal. This is a gal who, who runs in to enjoy this news with the church. It kind of reminds me, though, of a story, uh, you know, I'll keep the child's name anonymous, but one of my kids one time, I remember saying, hey, can you go pick up, you know, those, it was some flip-flops, pick up those flip-flops out in the field. And uh, this person uh, grabbed those flip-flops and I said, hey, bring them here. And for the joy of running back to her father, she, she grabbed the flip-flops and then threw them in the air and then ran back to me, you know, and, and forgot the task at hand. That's very similar to what's going on here. She's overwhelmed with joy. And it sort of commends her faith and her love for what God is doing in her life in contrast to the church. Let's look at how the church is responding to this situation. They don't respond well at all. Verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. Now this is the church, remember, that is praying earnestly for Peter's deliverance. Perhaps this is a little bit of a mild rebuke on the church, right? They're, they're exerting themselves in passionate prayer and effort for God to do something, but they're forgetting that God is doing something. We need to remember that prayer is not pragmatic. It's not if you do this, then this will happen. Prayer is something God is using in our lives to shape and mold us no matter how he answers his prayers, right? 
Prayers that are motivated by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That we're praying and God is interceding and working in to change us and to meld us and mold us according to his will. And so the church is not catching on at all to God's will spiritually. And instead they actually are joking Rhoda for this news. They're mocking her. They're saying, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. But verse 15, she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. I mean, they're mocked. They're saying, look, that's his guardian angel. You're seeing a vision. You're nuts is what they're saying. Get out of here. Remember in Acts 5, an angel had already delivered evangelist and had delivered Peter in this way. And so this is repeating history, and, but it was beyond their, the pale of what they would think could happen. It was beyond their thinking that Peter actually would be delivered, so they're mocking her. What happens? You know, and I want to mention this too. Do you remember when Mary and the women when they saw that Jesus had risen from the dead, they came back to the apostles. And what did the apostles say to the women? They said, you're telling us an idle tale. It's the same idea, the same idea. And aren't we like that? Aren't we like that? We pray for things, and then when God actually answers the prayer and is actually working, we we forget about that sometimes. Look at verse 16. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Now, the word amazed here, it means that they were in shock. And I think, again, there's a subtle rebuke here. The church was praying for his deliverance, and they're shocked when God actually followed through in answering their prayer this way and delivered him. They're shocked. They're amazed. They're so overwhelmed in shock and and sort of exuberance that Peter has to calm them down. Look at verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, now watch this. This is the point of the whole story. This is why God answered the prayer in this way. What did he say? He said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Seems like sort of an anticlimactic statement, right? Here Peter had been delivered. He describes how he was delivered. It's amazing. They'd been praying for this and and it happened and they got over themselves and they, they got in touch with God's plan. But what's so unique is the point of this is that there was a spiritual, a spiritual splash effect that was supposed to happen not only on this church that was meeting in Mary's house but on the church abroad. And Peter was catching on to the fact that he had been delivered to communicate a message of encouragement to the church abroad. How do I get that from this? Well, he says, tell James. Who is James? James is not the James that had just died, the son of thunder. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Remember, we just preached through the book of James. That's that James that wrote that book of the Bible. This is James that Galatians 2 says is one of the pillars of the early church, one of the main leaders of the church abroad. And remember, this is a revival movement that's, that's canvassing the world, where today there are 2 billion people who name the name of Christ worldwide. This is the largest religion in the world. And so God's concern isn't just for Peter's deliverance at that moment, as important as that may be, God's purposes are bigger than us. And he wants the church to see this miracle to to create exponential growth in the church. He wants the church to catch on. So he's saying, listen, I've told you my miracle story. Now spread this out. I'm lighting a match and I want it to, to spread out like wildfire. Tell James and then tell the brothers. And the brothers would be the other church leaders of the churches abroad they're forming in that moment. Encouragement. I think a lot of times we pray for physical deliverance. We pray for physical things. And God's got a greater, larger spiritual purpose in mind. And sometimes he saves people's lives and sometimes he allows people to die. But his will is being done and his kingdom is advancing through both outcomes. You see that? That's what Peter is concerned with. He's caught on to what happened. Oh, I'm supposed to preach this message. And Rhoda had just preached it herself. And the church is flaming up and understanding what is going on. 
And then Peter, it's not about him. He doesn't want to stay and be celebrated. Look at verse 17 at the end. Then he departed and went to another place. He's just kind of sublimated. He goes away. Verse 18 says, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened to Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down, this is Peter, then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So Peter's just, he's part of the story, he's part of the plan, but God's plan is bigger. These centuries, they die. And then if you were to look down at verses 21 and following Herod himself, you know, he puts himself up as the voice of God himself. And then in verse 23, it says that, that God had him struck down. The Lord struck him down because he did not give glory, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. You see how the picture and the purposes of God are bigger than just what happens to individuals. God's plan is bigger. His church advancing is bigger. And his glory is most significant. That's why we pray. Because God is in control. You know what? God placed you here in the 21st century, 2012, to be part of his plan. Your life is not about you. Your life is about the glory of God. We dare not be like this Herod, this wicked pragmatist trying to make things happen to protect himself from Rome or Tiberius or from the Jews and, and sort of making things happen. We are weak and helpless people. We are like Peter in prison. We are like the church that's helpless to save. And all we can do and the best thing we can do is pray and gel with God's will as God's will is working itself out for his own glory. And that's the safest place to be is on our knees trusting God with difficult circumstances. And I know the, the longer I'm here as pastor, I know more of the needs and more of the, the joys and pains of your life. And they all are bound up in God's plan. And, and we can understand the pain and the joy a little bit better as we pray and watch the Spirit of God intercede for us and mesh what's happening to us with his eternal purposes and plan, working all things together for the good. Let me just give a few applications. Number one, prayer advertises God's sovereignty. Anytime you pray genuinely, you were saying, God, you are in control. And I've already said this. James was killed. Peter was delivered. God received glory in both outcomes. Please don't use the sovereignty of God as an excuse not to pray this year. Let's commit together that we're praying not apart from the sovereignty of God. We're praying because of the sovereignty of God, right? Number two, praying advertises your dependence on God. Extreme circumstances are unique opportunities to pray earnestly. Let's get after it. Let's pray earnestly. From time to time, let's really, really commit and perhaps fall on our faces together in prayer vigil to see God's will play out before us. And earnest praying should bend. I say it should do this because genuine earnest praying will do this. Earnest praying should bend our will towards God's will. Prayer is used by God instru instrumentally to change things. God uses our praying and changes things. And he responds genuinely to our prayers. But guess what? He's changing us first and foremost as we pray. Number three, prayer advertises the supernatural. We should be careful not to presume to know God's answer. I think the church had given up and, and just... They didn't think a supernatural answer was going to come this time, but we should be careful not to presume that we know the answer, whether it be a supernatural one or God's will just playing out in a natural way. God may surprise you with a supernatural result. He might. Uh, it's important, I think, to write down our prayer request and then pray them and watch how God answers prayers. But maybe even more importantly, we need to calibrate our praying. And I didn't write this one down, but this one hit me after I turned in my outline. We need, to, we need to calibrate or we need to make our prayers biblical prayers, Bible prayers. What do we need to pray for? 
What did Paul pray for? I just want to go through this list really quickly. He prayed that the church would fall more and more deeply in love with Christ, to know the love of Christ, right? He prayed that Yodia and Sentichi would, would, would reconcile. He prayed for reconciled relationships. He prayed that the door of the gospel would be open to himself in mission work. He prayed that the church would grow in grace and knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you pray for these things for people, for yourself? Because these are the prayers that are, that are in accordance to God's will. And they're the prayers that God is always answering. And if we, if we get our head up like Peter, we see what's going on. We're being delivered. Things are happening spiritually around us. You'll watch that God is working in places all the time in ways that maybe you aren't even anticipating or acknowledging, but are happening all the time. Do you see that? I, I just want us as a church to have our heads up, looking around, watching God's will be done. When Paul was in prison, guess what? He didn't really pray that he would get out. I mean, he prayed that the door of the gospel would be open, but when he was writing the churches, his main concern wasn't for him to get out of prison. He wasn't praying according to circumstances. He was praying for hearts and lives to change, for gospel growth to happen, and that should be on our hearts. Let's do that right now. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for our church. I thank you that we can commit 2012 to be a year of prayer. And I pray, God, that we would recognize that you are in control. There's nothing that we can do to ultimately change things except we can pray and participate as you are changing things. Grow us in grace. Grow us in knowledge. Let us, Lord, we acknowledge we are like the church that prayed in Mary's house. We're the ones who, when you do things, we miss it. No matter how hard Peter was knocking, it's easy to just... Miss the point that you are delivering people, that you deliver and change lives. And I pray, God, that you would change our lives through prayer this year. And Lord, as there are many pains and griefs and burdens that are on people's hearts this morning for other people, I pray that you would use us to pray for people and that you would deliver many people to Christ this year that you would draw people to yourself. I pray that people that come regularly to our church that don't yet know you, I pray that you would open their eyes and that they would believe for the first time, that they would know you and that you would change their lives, change marriages. I pray that you would rescue marriages this year. Lord, you, you are for marriage, you're for commitment. I pray that you would transform families this year. Help me as a parent this year. Help me parent better. I pray that you would help parents to raise their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord this year. Lord, we want to be your people, used of you in a great way. Lord, mark this moment and let us commit our lives to you in prayer for this year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Invite you to stand um, as we close.